Today's passage comes from the books of Ephesians, 1 Timothy, and 1 Peter. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And again, I want to welcome you to our Sunday service. Today, we come to our final sermon in our four-part mini-series on the church. We called it We the Church. And we've looked at, so far, the church as a bride, the church as a family, and the church as a body. And what we've been saying is that church is not a building but a people. So, of course, today we will look at the church as a building. The Bible says that the church is a building, but not in the way that you might think. What comes to mind when you think of a church? Well, we picture kind of a massive cathedral with uh, stained glass windows, maybe a large cross, bells, pews, a pulpit, an organ. We imagine a physical building. But the Bible, it never refers to a physical building as a church. Rather, the church is a spiritual building. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Ephesians 2.22, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is the people of God. And the Bible says that the people of God, they're being built together as a spiritual house, a dwelling place for God. Let me ask you this. What makes one building more special than another? Why has all of New York City posted on Instagram in the last few months the new Hudson Yards Beehive rather than the Port Authority bus terminal. Well, I'm no architect or contractor, but I've watched my share of HGTV, and I know that certain categories should be considered when evaluating a building. Structure. So how is the building made? How stable and sturdy is its engineering? Function. What is the building's purpose? How functional is it? And finally, design. How aesthetically pleasing is the building? Is it unique? Is it distinct? Is it beautiful? Today, I want to look at the church as a building through these three lenses. Structure, function, and design. First, the structure. Now, 
when it comes to the structural integrity of a building, the most important factor is the foundation of the building. One of the most famous building structures in the world is the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy. And the reason why it's so famous is because it has a four-degree lean. And the reason for that? A weak and a shallow foundation. The tower is over 180 feet tall, but the foundation only goes 10 feet deep. And it was built upon not a, not a solid bedrock, but weak and unstable subsoil. If left alone, the tower would have collapsed by 2007, but efforts were made to kind of stabilize the building in the early 2000s. A deep, a stable foundation is necessary for the building to survive winds, earthquakes, and other natural forces. So if the church is a building, how is its foundation? Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So what we see is that Jesus is himself the foundation for the church, and he bears all the weight of the church. The church is grounded and rooted upon a foundation. The person whom the apostles and the prophets all testified about, Jesus Christ himself. So what we see is the foundation of the church, it is unwavering. It is unassailable. It is unshakable. 1 Timothy 3.15 also says that the church is a pillar and a buttress of truth. What do pillars and buttresses do? Well, they support now, the Roman Catholic Church, they have classically interpreted this verse as meaning that the truth kind of depends on the church, right? The church has to lift up the truth. So in a way, the, the church kind of determines the truth, but that's not what this verse means. And we've already established that the foundation of the church is Jesus himself, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what we see is that the church is built upon truth, but it also supports truth. It supports the truth, not in the sense that it determines the truth, but it displays the truth. It lifts up the truth. You know, this verse, it comes from 1 Timothy. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, who is the pastor of the Ephesian church. And Paul is very deliberate with this image of a pillar and buttress for truth. Because as Timothy's reading this, he knows exactly what Paul means. Because in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, there was the famous Temple of Artemis, or the Temple of Diana. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it doesn't exist today anymore except kind of fragments of the foundation, but it was famous because it had more than 100 ionic columns. Each of the columns was six stories high. 
and all of the pillars together, they, they supported this, this beautiful, this magnificent roof, which was made entirely of marble. And you could see this temple roof for miles around. So when Paul says that, Timothy, your church is a pillar, is a buttress of truth, Timothy knows exactly what he means. And all of the churches together, they support and they lift up the truth so that the world can see the truth and marvel at the truth of Jesus Christ. The church is built upon truth, and it supports and lift up, lifts up the truth. So what this means is we can never compromise or lose hold of the truth. And I think more than ever, we need to be reminded of this because we live in an increasingly post-truth world. Absolute truth, many say, either doesn't exist or even if it did, no one person, no one group, no one religion or philosophy could possibly claim to know it. Many people think this way, right? Christianity in our secular world, it's viewed as merely one option out of a million options. How could anybody possibly know which religion is the truth? Why even bother? Add to that the fact that we live in probably the most distracted age ever, and you come up with a culture in which faith is very thin. And people, they're not able to think deeply about questions of truth. And this world is preaching a different message than the church. The world's gospel says that the individual is the arbiter of truth. The message is this, the message of Moana. You determine for yourself what the truth is for you. Don't let anyone else define truth for you. Don't let society, don't let family, don't let religion, don't let friends tell you what you have to believe. Look within. Find the truth for yourself. What this means is that more than ever, the church needs to be a city on a hill, lifting up the truth, shining its light into the darkness of this world. We must love the truth. We must study the truth. We must guard the truth. We must tell the truth. This means that doctrine really matters. Theology matters. Creeds matter. Scripture has to be our foundation. The apostles and the prophets from whom we get the Bible, that's our foundation. And it may seem tedious, it may seem dry at times, but it is so necessary. You know, we signed uh, my five-year-old son Andy up for our town's t-ball league. My wife didn't want him to do it, but I was adamant. Because when I was a kid, all my friends joined Little League, and I begged my parents to let me join, and they said, no, you have to read and study. I begged my parents, and finally, in third grade, they let me join. And unlike my friends who played catch with their dads and grew up watching and learning the game, my dad never had time for that. 
I was the worst kid on my team. When I'd go up to bat, the other team would shout, easy out, and the outfielders would come in. <laughs> my teammates would kind of roll their eyes because they knew I'd be back real soon. My parents, they didn't have time to come to games because of work. And my team was good. They actually made the championship game. And it was at a different field. And my parents, we were driving to the championship game, and they couldn't find it, and they said, we're just going home. My team won the championship. And you know what? No one asked where I was. This is why Andy is starting early. Five years old, T-ball. And you know what? I, he needs some extra help because he's not very good. And I don't need him to be the best. I just, I, I don't want him to be the worst. Okay, my, my, the expectations are low. So, you know, I, I kind of, I want to teach him the rules of the game. I want to sit him down and instill the, the fundamentals. But he just wants to throw the ball and chase it. He just wants to bat however he wants. He doesn't want to learn the rules. He doesn't want to, to study the right techniques. He just wants to have fun. Now, I can just let him run around and have fun. It makes my job easy, but he will never appreciate the game or be part of the team until he learns the rules, he gets the fundamentals down. And the same is true, I argue, for the church. Doctrine has to undergird the structure of the building. We have to be a church, exilic, who loves the word, who studies the rules, who embraces the fundamentals, who loves Jesus. The church cannot abandon doctrine. The church cannot preach moralism or good advice. The world says, deeds, not creeds. Right? What are you doing for the community? That cannot be us. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, obey my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll have this warm feeling in your heart. He says, whoever obeys my commandments, it is he who loves me. So if that's true, then we have to study who Jesus is. We have to, 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 to know what he's done. We have to study his commands. Otherwise, when the strong winds blow... When earthquakes in life hit, we will lean, we will topple, we will fall. Paul also says that Jesus is the cornerstone. You know, the cornerstone is the first stone of the foundation that's set. The very first stone. And that stone is the reference point for all the other stones that will follow. So we have to be calibrated according to our cornerstone. And when that happens, we will truly be united to one another. The more we know, the more we study, and the more we love Jesus, the closer we will be to one another. There's a quote on, on the first page of your bulletin, the second one printed there by A.W. Tozer. I love this quote. Here's what he says. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which he, each one must individually bow. 
So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You know, too often we sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. You know, forget doctrine. Let's just all get along. Let's love one another. But it's knowing and loving Jesus that will truly bind us together, much more than if we were to try to be united through closer fellowship on our own. That's a little bit on the structure. My next point is function. What is the building's purpose? In the second sermon in the series, Pastor Aaron taught that the church is the family of God. And we see this here also in verse 15. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. But what we also see in both 1 Peter and Ephesians is that the church is not simply the household of God, but it's God's house. It's God's house. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And Ephesians 19.22 says that through 22 says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. <clears throat> you know, in order to understand what this means, we kind of need to go back. We need to go all the way back to the very beginning. <clears throat> God's goal from the very beginning, it was to dwell with his people. There was no temple in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because the Garden of Eden itself was a temple. God walked and talked freely with man and woman. And then sin destroyed that relationship. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden temple. And the entire story of the Bible that kind of unfolds from there is the answer to this question. How can man again dwell with God? How can man return to the place from which he was banished? So if sin results in separation from God, the question is how can that relationship be restored. That's the story of the entire Bible. <clears throat> so in the wilderness, you remember, when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, God establishes the tabernacle. It's, it's this tent of meeting that he sets up. And the Israelites are encamped, and God says, put the tent right in the middle of the camp. And that's God's heart. It's, I want to be in the midst of my people. I want to be, be in my people. I want to dwell with my people. But they're separated. The people cannot enter. And this is the case also when Solomon builds the huge, beautiful temple, the crowning achievement of his reign. But still, there's separation. Only once a year, after numerous washings and sacrifices, the high priest can enter into the presence of God. Well, that temple is destroyed and a second temple is built, and still a thick curtain separates man from God. 
And one day, Jesus Christ enters the temple, and he declares, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. His body is the temple, the dwelling place of God. And the moment Jesus dies upon the cross to atone for our sins, as soon as he breathes his last, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. No more division. No more separation from God. Well, Jesus rises from the dead, and then he ascends to the Father, and he sends his spirit to us at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the disciples, they're gathered together, and the Holy Spirit comes like a rushing wind. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit separates and rests upon each person. In Eden, God dwelled with his people. In the Old Testament in Israel, where did God dwell? If, if you were wanting to meet God, where did you go? You went to the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem. In the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you wanted to meet God, where did you go? Well, not to the temple. You went to Jesus. But today, where does God dwell? He rests on each believer. If, if you want to meet God, where do you go? No longer to a temple. No longer to one person, but to the church. To me, to you, to the believers. That is where God dwells, in the new temple, the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then how does this story end? In Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice, John tells us, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And what's fascinating is that in that holy city, John tells us, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the the picture painted here is nothing short of glorious. Eden is restored, but so much more. This is the purpose of the building. The church today, it's a preview of that consummated reality. It is utterly special. It is unique. It is holy. So not only does a church have the highest structural integrity, but it also has the holiest functionality. My last point is that it also has beautiful creativity. The design. 1 Peter 2.4, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter says. Peter says, that Jesus is a living stone who was rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight. 
And he also says we, similarly, are like living stones in Jesus. And here's what this means. The world will look at the church, and what they'll see is the church's ugliness. The world will see the church's brokenness, the church's sin, the church's hypocrisy, the church's ignorance, the church's stupidity. And you don't have to look far to see it. We see this in the headlines. Tales of abuse, corruption, dissension, fighting within the church. But what does God see when he looks at the church? Because of Jesus, he sees beauty. He sees perfection. Of all the people in the world, you are special, chosen, and precious. The world looks at God's design for the church, and they don't get it, right? It's, it's, it's like reading Shakespeare to my two-year-old, right? Just, just words. They don't get it. The world will see stones, and what are stones? They're rocks. They're inanimate. They're dull. They're stupid. But these are no ordinary stones, Peter says, you are living stones, full of life. I want to ask you, do you you ever wake up and feel ordinary and plain? Do you have days when you look in the mirror and you just feel really ugly? Do you often feel overlooked by the world? Do you feel like you have no worth, no value? Does it sometimes feel like no one really cares about you? I want to remind you that you are a rare and precious diamond in the sight of God. And even when the world rejects you, remember that, that you are chosen, that you are precious to God because Jesus, the living stone, he was rejected for you. You know, it matters who rejects you and who accepts you. Or who validates you, doesn't it? Like if, if someone I didn't know came up to me and said, I hate you, I'll say, okay, great. I, I might feel a little sad, but if my wife were to say that now, I'm devastated. Right? But it also matters who validates you, right? Imagine, you know, Beyonce were to come to me and say, you are beautiful. I can't stop thinking about you. Now I'm flattered. I'm like, oh, <laughs> It matters who validates you. The fact that the God of the universe, the standard of beauty and perfection, the paragon of it all, the one who created it, when he looks at you and he is stunned and he says, wow, chosen, precious, beautiful, then it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks, what anyone else says about you. Church, you are beautiful to God. This should cause us to marvel. Marvel at the builder, the ingenuity. Because God doesn't use the best and the most expensive materials. He uses rejected stones that no one else wanted to build with. And he uses that to build something stunning, to build something timeless. 
He causes these diverse elements and he brings them together to, to cohere, to present the church as this beautifully unified whole building. And he's not done yet. The building grows. It develops. As more people are brought in, more stones are placed. This is a work in progress. And we can't see the finished product. We see glimpses. We see previews in the Bible. But the good news is, it will be completed. Jesus promised his disciples. He said, on this rock, you, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is full of sinful and broken people, but the church will prevail because Jesus is the builder. He is the foundation. He is the one who makes us holy and beautiful. I want to close with a quick story that uh, I shared with my community groups this week. Um, Just kind of what this meant for me. Um, back in the summer of 2001, uh, during my time as an undergrad, I, I went on a mission trip to China. And I taught English for a month in a city called Yuncheng, which is kind of, it's, it's in the Shanxi province, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere, about a 30-hour train ride from Beijing. And my class had about 20 high school students, and uh, they all had very broken English. And uh, I, I couldn't speak Mandarin, so uh, conversations were very, very slow. But I became very close with my students. I spent a lot of time with them outside of the classroom. And we let them choose English names, and they all chose their, their favorite movie stars or athletes. I had a Beckham, Cruz, Kobe, Shaq. And uh, I became especially close with one student, and he was a kind of tough guy. He, he wore these army camouflage pants and, and a tank top so that he could show off his muscles. And he wore that every day. And he named himself Stallone because his favorite movie was Rambo First Blood. And Stallone didn't quite fit in with the other students. He had a tough situation at home and he didn't have too many close friends. He was kind of like an outsider. So he uh, naturally kind of latched on to me. And we spent a lot of time together, and, and somehow an opportunity came up for me to share my faith with him. And it was a very slow conversation, um, but by the end of it, tears were streaming down his face. And he told me that he believed. He believed. And uh, it was incredible. But as it, as it came time for me to leave, I, I started to get a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen to him. You know, I, I, I had a, a Chinese Bible that I gave him, but the translation, it was written in a very old Chinese. And he was reading it, and he's like, I don't understand what any of this means. Can I have your English Bible instead? I was like, no, your English is pretty bad, but here you go. Um, I... I He had the bare, bare basics. I didn't know any churches, any missionaries in the area. I had no idea what would happen to him. And it's also very dangerous to be a Christian in China. So he couldn't openly look for other believers or other Christians or missionaries or churches. And I remember thinking, I am the only church that Stallone has. 
and I have to leave. Well, a year later, I returned to China, this time to study abroad in Beijing, and I had about a week off from my program, so I went by myself on that train ride to Yuncheng to visit Stallone. And I spent a few days with him to kind of follow up. And he still had such a simple, such a bare-bones understanding of the gospel. And I left, and, and over the years, we lost touch. And I still prayed for Stallone whenever I could, but, but I really questioned what, what became of him, what happened to him. Well, two weeks ago, I got a Facebook friend request from John Fan from Guangzhou, China. And I took one look at the picture and I messaged him, Stallone, <laughs> is that really you? And we've been catching up over this past week and he's now a very successful project manager at a very big tech company. His English really improved a lot. And best of all, he's still a believer. He walks with Jesus. He said, it's me, Stallone, your brother in Christ. That was how he introduced himself. Amazing. That God would save this tough, outcast nobody in the middle of rural China and sustain his infant faith without community, without pastoral care for the past 18 years. Miraculous. How foolish of me to think that I was the only church Stallone had. Jesus is building his church, and it will prevail. Stallone will be in heaven forever, and I got to be a part of that. What a privilege that he, that I, that you, we are fellow living stones united together in this beautiful church that Jesus is building. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your church. What a privilege it is to be a part of it, to be your bride, to be your family, to be your body, and yes, to be your house that you dwell in and with us and you will for all eternity to come. Help us not to take it for granted, but help us to, to go and to bring more people in. Help us to lift up the truth for the world to see. And help us to be grateful that we, rejected stones, are brought in because of Jesus, the living stone. In his name we pray.